0: And then please turn in your Bibles today to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Someone said they thought that deserved a special announcement, that we were moving on from chapter 16. Just in what we have heard in a, read in our hearing this morning, there was much said about the, um, the opposition that Paul faced. Uh, and even in the passage that, that our brother read to us from Thessalonians, it mentioned the opposition from Philippi. Now Paul had, Paul and Silas has, have left Philippi, uh, having been run out of town, as it were. And we find them in the text today in Thessalonica. Today we will consider in these first few verses, just the first five verses of this chapter, we'll consider the ministry methods of Paul, the ministry methods of Paul. These are the methods that Paul used again and again, and we'll look at these ministry methods to see the elements (laughs) that go beyond just Paul's preference we'll look to see God's method. What, is, what are God's methods of gospel ministry? All gospel ministry must be faithful to God's message and to God's methods. Methods matter. Because when we abandon God's methods for Man's preferred methods God's gospel Is changed It morphs into something else The gospel is lost So we want to see God's methods For gospel ministry today This is important Work that we do in these verses So let's ask God's help As we consider this very important Task Bow with me if you would Our great God creator and sustainer of all, Savior, we come to you this morning standing in need. We come in need of our prophet because of our ignorance. We stand this morning in need of our priest because of our sin. And we stand in need of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to subdue us to Yourself, to rule and defend us against the enemy and all his adversaries. Help us today, we pray. Help us to see the truth from Your Word. Keep us from error, we ask. Bless the preaching of Your Word to the sanctification of the saints Uh and salvation of sinners. And it's for Your kingdom's sake that we pray this. Amen. You would follow along in your Bible, Acts 17, verses 1 through 5. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there were, was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scripture explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Here we find the missionaries, Paul and Silas and those who traveled with them in Thessalonica. That city still exists today. We know it today as Thessaloniki, uh, so there are some things that I think we should note about Thessalonica. It's an old city, that's one thing. But Thessalonica was situated at the intersection of two main Roman highways, two main Roman roads. And it was also a port city in the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea. Thessalonica had been a capital city and a major port of the whole Roman province of Macedonia this was an important city and if you notice it was no small town this is not rural this population is estimated at that time to be about 200,000 that's bigger than wake up. 200,000 it's a million people today Thessalonica was under Roman rule from 186 BC to 379 AD, that's 565 years under Roman rule, and Thessalonica was declared a free city, a free city, and what that meant was that they could exercise a form of government, their own form of government, and they were under this Greek political system of politarchs. polytarchs. polytarchs. This system of government called polytarchs, Politarchs and the people, uh, this system of government in reference to Thessalonica was only found in the scripture, only found in the Bible here in Acts 17. And it was for such a long time a source of ridicule for those who would like to deny the Scripture. We see the word politarchs translated in verses six and in verses, verse eight, verse six and eight in your Bible. And you'll see city authorities. That's the word that we're talking about. Politarchs. City authorities. Verse six says, when they did not find him, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the politarchs. And they, verse eight, they stirred up the crowd and the politarchs who heard these things liberal critics, because this was only referenced in the New Testament, only referenced in the Bible, liberal critics said this form of government was never mentioned in any archaeology, was never mentioned in any of the historical records that they had found at that time in Thessalonica, so the Bible must be wrong, the Bible must be unreliable. Well, as is always the case, and always will be the case, time proved the Bible to be true and a reliable historical account. Later, evidence was uncovered in Thessalonica that there were polytarchs and all those people who had read the Bible said, and we already knew that, I share this with you today just to remind us of the reliability of the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. No matter what the world may say to to try to cast doubt on the Bible, the truth will always be revealed, eventually be revealed, that the holy scriptures are true. God be true and every man a liar. Our Bibles are reliable accounts. So we see that Paul and Silas came here to this great city, 200,000 people. and, And this was a great place to plant a church. And that's exactly what they're doing here. They're church planting. They may not have called it that. But that's exactly what's going on here. So so we look here at church planting this morning at, at a case study. And we learn from this case study. And the first thing we see is that this location is prime. It's a wonderful location. They pass through these other two cities that are mentioned. If they stopped at all, it was only briefly. They passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia to settle in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a large town. If you remember in Philippi, there was no synagogue. There were not enough Jewish men to form a synagogue. So there was no synagogue. But here, verse 1 tells us that there was a synagogue. And some believe that there was more than one synagogue in this large city. But verse 1 tells us there was a synagogue. And verse 2 says that Paul and Silas went there. This was their practice. This was their custom. We're not told explicitly why they went to the synagogue first and why this was a regular practice, but we can suppose we can use a little sanctified imagination and we can come up with some pretty good answers. I think primarily Paul comes preaching Jesus as the Messiah preaching Jesus as the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one promised throughout the scriptures of the Old Testament. And the world may have known little or nothing about Jesus and about the promised Messiah. But the Jews certainly knew about this promise. This was very important to them, and they knew about it. So there's a great starting place for a discussion about Jesus with the Jews at the synagogue. So Paul and Silas go to the synagogue. This audience at the synagogue was Jews and those Gentile proselytes to Judaism those Gentiles who were in some stage of conversion or some stage of of honoring or worshiping the uh, God of the Jews and learning about their scriptures. This audience was the most ready in that area to hear about Jesus and to hear that Jesus is the Messiah. They, the, the ones who were ready, the ones who would, who would understand that, would be found there. So Paul's practice was to go to the synagogue first. And the text tells us that he went to the synagogue in Thessalonica for three weeks, for three Sabbaths in a row. He went there to do his ministry, to do his work there. And that brings us to our next observation. They chose a great place. They chose to start at the synagogue. But he went to the synagogue for three weeks. They were probably most definitely in Thessalonica much longer than three weeks. As we know, Paul's practice, he would go to the synagogue, he would reason with them, and then inevitably, the majority of those Jews would reject him and his gospel, and reject Christ, and then Paul would preach. He would stay in that city and preach to the Gentiles. So there's every reason, and there's evidence for us to see, that Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica for longer than just three weeks. He was there for a significant period of time. And what we learn from this is that preaching the gospel... Doing the work of gospel ministry is not a hurried endeavor. This is not a three-minute conversation. This is something that takes time. And Paul and Silas invest the time into this. It takes time to properly preach the gospel. It takes time to teach what must be taught. So Paul and Silas chose a great location. They took the time needed to do the work of the gospel. And we learned something here about gospel work. We learned that gospel work is not an emotional work. I mean, if it was an emotional work, they could have done it much quicker. Just work people up into a, uh, an emotional state. But the gospel And gospel work, gospel ministry is not an emotional work. Now, someone may be thinking it's emotional to me. And we're not at all saying that emotions are not involved. But what we are saying is that the Christian gospel, the message of Christ is not an emotional message. I've often used the analogy, speaking of emotions, use the analogy of a train to say that emotions make an excellent caboose and a lousy engine. If you're led by emotions, everybody look out. Emotions make a great caboose. Emotions coming along with is great, but emotions leading things, that's where it's dangerous. So the gospel engine, if you will, is not emotion. We've all seen those who try to use emotion in the name of the gospel, in the name of Jesus. Some do it, I believe, firmly with ill intent. And others may do it because that's all they know. They think that's what church is. It's just an emotional thing. The rise and fall of the music will make people malleable. If you're wondering, did he just make that up? No, that's what I was taught when I became a music minister in Baptist churches. Taught by a bad teacher. Emotions can be manipulated by the rise and fall of the music, the lighting. And the climate control systems can be used to set the environment, to set the tone. And people say, I got goosebumps. Well, you got goosebumps because the air conditioner was turned way down. And and here's the deal. It is laughable, isn't it? But it's the truth. It's the truth. People do this to manipulate people. Even even things that many of us grew up with, like the altar call at the end of the service, why is that there? It's so that people can make an emotional decision. While we've got their emotions whipped up, while we have them in this state, let's let's make a decision then. And many of those decisions turn out to be just that, whipped up emotions. That when the light of the sun hits that, it fades into nothing. There are those who, who take this emotionalism and even bring it to the point of blasphemy, to deny the very character of God, to deny his immutability, his impassibility, his simplicity, his aseity. you don't know what those words mean, you need to be here. You need to be here when we're studying these things, these characteristics of God. It's, it's, it's people trying to make God into an emotional being. To make God more like me. To think of God like I think of a man. Well, an elevated man like a super man. And God is not a super man. God is God people trying to make him more emotional so that we can be emotional when we get into this ooey-gooey thing. This emotional manipulation, this emotional stuff, this is not gospel work. Emotional manipulation is not what Christianity is all about. It wasn't the ministry of Jesus Christ and it wasn't the ministry of the Apostle Paul. In the modern church landscape, there are many things in this country and maybe around the world that we see other things that are passed off as ministry. And they're not the ministry of the word. They are not the ministry of the gospel. Some of those things that we see are the therapeutic masquerading as ministry. Proponents of so-called therapeutic ministry say their goal is to help people by taking God's Word and applying it to the everyday life struggles and challenges that people have. And they leave off the greatest need of mankind. They leave off man's sinfulness. They leave off the need for a Savior. They leave those things out. No mention of judgment. No mention of heaven and hell. Therapeutic as ministry is not gospel ministry. There's entertainment passing for ministry among us. Many of you have seen this. The idea is that the church needs to provide alternatives, Christianized alternatives for whatever the worst things that the world has to offer. It works like this. Just take A Lady Gaga song, change the lyrics, and then bring it into your church worship services and call that music ministry. Sometimes this is referred to as worshiptainment. And this sort of thing would not be recognizable as gospel ministry to the early church fathers or to the apostles. It's not what Paul and Silas did. So we ask the question, if, if all these things are not gospel ministry, it's not emotional manipulation or, or even an emotional appeal, it's not therapeutic, it's not entertainment, then what does gospel ministry look like? What is it that the church ministry should do? And what is it that gospel ministers should do? Well, as we look at verses two through four, will see gospel ministry. Let's read those verses again. According to Paul's custom, he went to them, that is to the synagogues, and the three Sabbath reasoned with them from Scripture, explaining and giving evidence that Christ, the Christ, had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas With a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. In these three verses, I have counted for us six characteristics. Six markers of gospel ministry. These things that are evident in Paul's ministry. And we should see in modern day biblical ministry. We should see these things. Now, as we look at this, I want to tell you, some of us may be taken aback. Some of us may be caught off guard by some of these things. We're so used to seeing bad action posing as ministry that we today may need to be re-educated by God's word. From this text, we see that gospel work, gospel preaching, gospel ministry is, first of all, reason. Look at verse 2. Paul reasoned with them. He reasoned with them. Now this is an appeal to the mind. An appeal to the intellect. This is not just emotion. It's reason. You'll remember the Lord says in Isaiah. Come now let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Come, let us reason together. The gospel is a reasoned gospel. Gospel ministry is reason. Ministry that can cleanse our sin. Gospel ministry is reason ministry. Secondly, and related to this reasoned ministry, gospel ministry is explanatory. It's explanatory in verse 3. Verse 3 tells us Paul and Silas were explaining. They were explaining Christian ministry. Christian, The Christian gospel is not asking people to, to just have a blind faith. Or to have an ignorant faith. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I'm just going to believe in something. No, that's not Christianity. With Christianity, there are facts. There are things that must be believed. Now, let me pause because somebody is running away. Somebody's running off with this thought. Preacher, you can't know everything. No, and we won't know everything. And no matter how long you are on this earth as a believer, you still don't know everything. But you've got to know something. There are facts that are necessary that must be believed. And those those things have to be explained. I mean, we can speak about God's holiness, but God's holiness can't just go With those two words, God's holiness, there must be an explanation about God's holiness. Man is sinful, and we all know man is sinful. I've never never met someone who has said, I've never sinned. I've never met someone who would say, man is not sinful. We all know that man is sinful. But even though we know this, we have to explain sin's effect we have to explain sin's death and problem in a man and sin's effect on the soul of a man and in light of God's holiness how sin keeps us from God and from a right relationship and fellowship with him the facts must be explained think of the facts of the gospel Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a completely sinless life. He died on the cross of Calvary to pay the sin debt of all who would believe on Him. And then He rose again from the grave. He rose from the dead. All these vital facts must be believed and they require explanation. So gospel ministry has to be reasoned, and it has to be explanatory. Next, gospel ministry is evidentiary. You may prefer the word evidential. What we're saying here is that gospel ministry is based on evidence and shows evidence. Verse 3, Paul is explaining and giving evidence. He's giving evidence. Paul is taking these Jews and Gentile proselytes at the synagogue. He's taking them through the scripture and he's showing them how Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament prophecies. He's showing evidence that Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies. And that Jesus is the Christ. We say Jesus Christ, and we think that that may be Jesus' first and last name. It's not. That's Jesus, his name, and Christ, his title, which says he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And, And Paul is taking them through and showing them how Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies. He is the anointed one from God. So far from Christianity being some sort of a blind leap into a dark chasm, there is reliable evidence and gospel ministry is evidentiary. It's reasoned, it's explanatory, and it's evidentiary. So, so we see these three markers of gospel ministry and I want to take the time out before we go through the last three because we need to talk about this. Gospel ministry is reasoned, explanatory, and evidentiary, but that is not enough for salvation. That is not enough for the saving of sinners. More is required than reason, explanation, and evidence. Church, this is important for us to remember. If we develop Ministry that is reasoned, explanatory, and evidentiary, and that's all we have, then no one will be saved. No one will be saved. In order for the gospel to be effective, in order for sinners to be saved, gospel ministry must be met with the supernatural work of God. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain that build it. Well, unless the Lord is working in our ministry, we waste our time. So we do the work of ministry and we pray for God to do his work. The outward call of the gospel must be met with the inward call of the Holy Spirit in order for sinners to be saved. And this should keep us humble. This should keep us grounded. All that we can do, church, is not enough. We can't say it. Only God can say it. But it, it, it keeps us grounded. It keeps us humble. But it also helps us to focus our attention and our efforts. What should we do, church? Just any old thing? No, we must do the work that is assigned, that that is prescribed, that is ordained by God for us to do in ministry. We must keep laboring in the ordinary means of grace. Ordinary, that word to some of us means plain and boring. We should hear the word ordinary And think ordained But even if you think that it's plain and boring Because many do Many do We're not going to spice it up It's ordained by God We must continue To shape our ministry After the ministry methods That we find in scripture Not creating new Things coming up with new ideas When I first went Into ministry I heard If I heard it once I heard it A thousand times We need to think outside the box And I started Saying we're thinking outside the book We need to think Inside the book God's word Our ministry Must be Aided, empowered, helped by the work of the Holy Spirit. Our ministry must be reasoned, explanatory, and evidentiary, and we'll pick back up there. Our ministry must be scriptural. Now, would it be possible for us to develop a ministry plan that is reasoned and explanatory and evidentiary and not be grounded in the scripture? We can't do that. Paul didn't just argue. Look at verse 2. He reasoned from Scripture. He reasoned from Scripture. There are many who chase after something. Chase after crowds. Chase after money. Chase after something. And turn away from the Scripture. They tend to favor psychology. Worldly philosophies. They tend to favor the therapeutic or the entertainment in ministry. But we must be faithful to Scripture. Paul reasoned with them from Scripture. Fifthly, gospel ministry must be Christocentric. If you prefer, Christ centered. Gospel ministry must be Christ-centered. Now, I'm taking this from verse 3, where Paul says, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you, what am I telling you? Jesus. Jesus was what he was proclaiming. But it should feel a little redundant to us. Does it? Gospel ministry must be Christ-centered. We know that without Christ, without Jesus Christ... There is no gospel without Jesus Christ. There is no ministry. So that's why I say that it should feel a little redundant to say it. But hey, we got to say it. gospel ministry must be Christocentric. The Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the gospel message is how Jesus redeems sinners. It's all about Jesus. These first five marks of gospel ministry are really focused and centered on the work of the church, the work of the ministers of the gospel. And we, we talk about what we do, what we should do, and what we should not do in ministry. But there's one more marker here, and it doesn't really point us to what we should do or not do. It points us to the result, it points us to the end of gospel ministry. We do this, but to what end? For what purpose? What is the result? When the church fulfills the great commission and the Holy Spirit works to make new creations of those who believe, what does that look like? What is the end of successful gospel ministry when God saves a sinner? Persuasion. Persuasion. Look at verse 4. When verse 4 is speaking to us and telling us that some of the Jews were saved, that they became Christians, that they were converted, it says this, and some of them were persuaded. Some of them were persuaded. That's what the end of gospel ministry looks like. Now we do need to be reminded that the Holy Spirit must work This persuasion is not merely a convincing of the mind, but a convincing of the mind is necessary. This persuasion is a complete change of heart, heart and mind. And this truly is the work of the Spirit of God. The conversion of sinners Here in Acts 17 is called persuasion. They were persuaded. And this too gives us insight into the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Friends, we believe in a sovereign God. We believe in God's sovereignty even over the salvation of sinners. But we are not robots or automatons that come to Jesus. Because we are programmed to do that That's not what the scripture teaches We believe We believe in the doctrine of the effectual call Sometimes called by that By that dirty word Irresistible grace We believe that But God brings us to Christ Using means And persuasion Is part of this Our confession speaks to this and speaks of methods, and we'll see these markers that we've been considering, some of them. Uh, Listen as I read from paragraph 10, no, from chapter 10, uh, chapter 10, paragraph 1 from our second London Confession. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call. By his word and spirit. You see, by his word and spirit. Out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ enlightening their minds. That's reasoned, explanatory, and evidentiary. Enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly To understand the things of God. It can't just be the work of men. It has to be the work of the Spirit. He's doing this, but this is what he's doing. Taking away their heart of stone and giving to them a heart of flesh. Renewing their wills. That's persuasion. Renewing their wills. And by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Christ. So are we robots? Oh, I didn't finish. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. It's persuasion. The end of the gospel, the goal, the result of God's gospel work is persuasion. May God help us to ensure that These important markers of true gospel ministry are always seen in what we do here at Waco Family. Before we leave this passage, there are a couple of other things to point out there. Things that are generally seen in Paul's ministry, they're not necessarily markers for us to look at and emulate, but they are markers that there's correlation for us in today's church. We read in verse four that some of the the Jews, a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women were persuaded. They were converted to Christ. What a a blessing that is. What a a wonderful thing. This this group who believed in Christ, they were broadly speaking Jews. And I've already mentioned this. They They were Jewish men. And it says God-fearing Greeks. So this means they were Gentiles in some stage of coming to Judaism, and some of the leading women. But but as a whole, this group could be called Jews. And we know because it says here later in these verses that the Jews start up a riot. The Jews. So some of the Jews were saved but the majority of the Jews in the synagogue resisted the truth, rejected Jesus Christ and then that Paul turned to the Gentiles to preach the gospel he being the apostle to the Gentiles and there were many more saved from among the Gentiles separate and apart from the Circumcised, separate and apart from the synagogue. When Paul wrote a letter to the Thessalonian church later, we read from that letter earlier in our service, but he wrote this, uh, he wrote that many of those had turned away, I'm sorry, had turned to God from serving idols. Had turned to God from serving idols. So their ministry had been done and that statement would not apply to those who were in the synagogue who were converted. That statement would apply to those who were Gentiles outside the synagogue who were converted. They turned to God from serving idols. So there was much ministry done and much more to do in this great city for the kingdom of God. Paul's practice of beginning with the Jews and returning to the Gentiles. We see that over and over in his ministry. And we see another thing that's common in Paul's ministry. And again, we read earlier about some of these things. Verse 5 begins to tell us about the Jews becoming jealous and staging this resistance, a rioting mob Opposing the gospel and opposing the ministers of the gospel it always I don't know why but it, it always comes as a surprise to us when we see the gospel preachers accused of stirring up trouble and they're accused by the rioting crowd who's stirring up trouble we see here this thing that occurs over and over, this thing that we just saw in Philippi, where there was opposition, where there was resistance, where there are, there are those who hated Paul, hated the message that he preached because they hated the Jesus whom he proclaimed We'll look more at this resistance that rose up next time, but for now we can simply say that the gospel Always has its enemies So church we shouldn't be surprised When we are met with opposition God has given us the privilege Of being a part Of his redemptive work He has given us the task Of spreading the gospel Preaching the gospel Proclaiming Christ And then he's given us the power in Christ to do. To to perform this task. We are to be about gospel ministry. And by God's grace. Our ministry. Will be reasoned. It will be explanatory. It will be evidentiary. It will be scriptural. It will be Christ centered. And it will be. (laughs) Persuasive. <laughs> Let's bow our heads. God of our salvation, Master, Redeemer, and Lord, we come to you asking help from your hand. God, give us gospel ministry. Give us gospel work that is in keeping with your methods and your message. Help us to serve you. Help us to please you as we serve you as you build your kingdom. God, we pray. For the results, the outcome, the end of our ministry efforts, the end of our ministry work, that it would be persuasive. God, we pray for the salvation of sinners. We pray that you would draw our children to Christ. As we think about so many babies, so many babies to be born, so many young children already among us, We also think about those who are older. We pray that you draw our children to Christ. Save our loved ones. Bless us now and equip us for your service.